More than conquerors. Did he say more than conquerors? He doesn't look like a conqueror. So many of you that know me are going, what did he do to himself now? But I'm trying to make a point. And the point that I'm trying to make is that sometimes we feel this way. We don't feel like conquerors. Sometimes if I don't learn the balance and the benefit of the extremes, I have a Band-Aid on my nose. (laughs) The extremes of God's truth about me and about God and how those are interwoven to make a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel, I'm gonna feel beat up. When I sit in church and I hear a message about killing sin, which is what we're gonna talk about today, if I don't understand the extremes and how they're woven together into the gospel, I'm gonna feel beat up. When I read God's word, I'm gonna feel beat up. When I make a mistake and someone encourages me by offering me some scripture, I'm gonna feel beat up. But the purpose of teaching and exhorting and encouraging is not to make us feel beat up. It's to get us to engage our brains, to engage our brains about the truth, these extreme truths, so that we can go about the business of killing sin. You see, we need to engage these truths and not use the Bible as 10 easy steps on how to kill sin. That's not what we do in church. There are no such steps, and if there were, they certainly would not be easy. So I pray that today, by visiting these extremes, that uh, we will engage our brains and our hearts with the full view of the truth, and it would bring balance to our lives in a way that we don't feel like I walked out, but we feel like this. We feel like more than conquerors. Because that's what we are in Christ. So before we pray, I want to look, I want you to fill in your first fill in the blank. It's by embracing the truths about God's extreme goodness, love, and power, and at the same time acknowledging our extreme capacity to be hideously sinful, we can begin to do battle with sin. We can take on the task of killing sin in our lives. Because when it comes to sin, if I don't have Christ in my life, there's no contest. I lose every time. But when it comes to the cross, when it comes to the resurrection, when it comes to Christ in me, when it comes to battling my sin, there's no contest. So let's pray. God, as we wake each morning and walk throughout the day, and at some time during the night we find our rest, we do it with a borrowed breath and a borrowed heartbeat. Because our lives are not our own. They're undeserved. You've given us life. In every moment of our lives and all that we have the capacity to do and have is sustained by your mercy and your amazing power and your amazing grace. So tonight, God, we beg you to awaken our hearts and our minds and help us to remember that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. 
Help us to know why your word says that your mercies are new every morning, that it's not just a platitude offered by you, but that we are desperately in need of new mercies, not only every morning, but every moment of every day. Through your word and your spirit, Lord, shake us with fear concerning the reality of our sin, that we might be broken by it and emptied of any confidence that we might have in our flesh then, God, we beg you to fill us up with a humbling, jaw-dropping, tearful awe of your goodness, your love, and the hope we have that in the finished work of Jesus Christ that you've given us. Help us to begin in a fresh and enduring way to be killing sin in your power for your glory and our good. We praise you for your never-ending mercies and steadfast love. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So I'm Pastor Scott. I'm kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming tonight. We're continuing our series, More Than Conquerors, and Killing Sin is our subject tonight. And we've learned a lot of things in this series that are actually necessary for us to go about the business of killing sin. The first one, there is no condemnation in Christ. That much. No condemnation in Christ. And the only sin that we can hope to overcome is for sit, forgiven sin. And God's word tells us that they're all forgiven by the cross in Christ. It doesn't tell us that life will be easy. It says that it will be a battle, but it's a battle that we can't lose when we are in Christ Jesus. Because we are set free from the penalty of sin through Christ's work, and we are set free, free through the power of of the power of sin through the Holy Spirit's work. And all wrapped up by the Spirit and all we are in Christ, we can live and suffer well in killing the dominion of sin in our lives. If you've turned in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, our verses today are verses 12 and 13. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's some basics I want to address before we dig a little bit deeper. First, it says we are debtors. We are under obligation. It doesn't say we're not debtors. And what is it about our being debtors? Well, first of all, as I prayed, God has given us life. We're in debt to him for that all the capacities that we have to do and have the things that we have were given to us by him. But we are double debtors by the sin debt that we've racked up that he has purchased us out of the grave and given us eternal light. So we are double debtors. And verse 13 tells us to put to death by the spirit the deeds of the body. This word put to death, it's actually one word in the Greek, thanato, and its tense is the present active indicative tense. Which in the way of killing sin, it means it's to be done right now in an, in an active and effective way. And doing battle this way with sin is necessary. It's necessary for running the race. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that life is like running the race and it's necessary to kill sin along the way. So we're all in this race as Christians, not to win, because we've already been given the prize. I'll talk a little bit about that. But it's necessary for us to run the race. And, and you've heard the starting sequence. Ready, set, you guys finish it? Go. 
go, right? But when we're born, we don't get a good start, do we? We don't get that ready, set, go. Bob Dylan wrote a song. He's a great theologian. Uh, <laughs> and he said, we're born already ruined, stone cold dead when we step out of the womb. But ready, set, go. Like I prayed, God's mercies are new every single morning and we can run a new race every single day with new mercies that are given to us by God. It's amazing. And so let's think about that ready, set, go sequence. I always hated those kids on the playground when we were doing a race. They said, ready, go. And they didn't say set. Right? Because when that starter says ready, you're not really ready. All you've really done is stepped up to the starting line, kind of towed it a little bit. You've considered the race. You know the path that you're supposed to run on. You kind of sized up the competition. You know how far you might be going and what kind of endurance you might need on the way. But then when he says set, that's when you dig in. That's when you cock your body. You commit to the race. You're really ready now. And then when he says go, you're in it. And you gotta be in it to win it. You're in it with everything you have all the way to the finish line. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse 24 says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And that's how we need to run the Christian life, that we may obtain the prize. And what I mean by that is the full benefit of the prize that we have in Christ. In running this race, we must embrace all God's truths to be ready and commit to them that we might set and run with all that we have in Christ as we go. So number two is we must intellectually and emotionally do all we can to set, to commit to our minds on the things of the spirit to be able to go about the business of killing our sin. And not only to go, but to do it well, to persevere, to finish well. So as my example goes, this ready, set, go is the full implementation of our faith. But there's hurdles along the race. And there's not just hurdles in our Christian life. The hurdles want to kill us. It's our sin. We have an enemy. John Owen, a theologian in the 17th century, wrote this book called The Mortification of Sin and Believers. little 86-page book, and it's really an exposition of Romans 8.13. And it was Owen that said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And he used the word mortify in his book over and over and over again, and it meant to kill. We, we, we kind of minimize words that we use today. Sometimes you might hear someone say, you're killing me, right? But they don't mean you're really killing them. They mean that you're, they're inconvenienced or they're not getting their way. Or you might hear someone say, I was mortified. And that might mean that they were embarrassed or put off or ashamed. And so what Owen means by using the word mortify, it's to kill and not just to let die, but to cause death. And that's what we must do when we're going about killing sin. We must cause the death of our sin, or it will cause the death of us. But we must do it with the right head and the right heart, the right truths that lie within us. Because, number three, God's goodness will not lead us to repentance if we do not acknowledge our badness and own it. 
Because if God's really not that good, then we're really not that bad. But God is really good. And we are really bad. In fact, when it says that we walk uh, in that untruth, Romans 2, 3 through 5, when we uh, walk around and point out other people's sin, but sin in the same way, it says that we're storing up wrath for ourselves. So who is the we that Paul is talking about in our verses today? He's talking to the church, and the church is full of sinners. And here's one of the extremes that I really want to drive home, and I don't want you to feel beat up, okay? I want you to just engage your brains and your hearts of really how bad our sin problem is. And to do so, I want, to, I want you to look at Romans chapter 1 and 2, okay? I'm just going to read a little bit about chapter 1 today, Romans 1, but I encourage you to do this exercise on your own and to think about it. And the way I'm going to do it um, is an extreme way. Now, you can go the unextreme route by just looking at Romans 3.23, which says, all have sinned and finish it, fallen short of the glory of God, right? So you can just say, well, yeah, so I'm not perfect. That's not the extreme truth of that verse. The extreme truth of the verse is all of chapters one and two. And that describes who we are, what we've done, what we do on a regular basis. And so I want to read chapter one, a little bit of it, and replace the personal pronouns of we and our and us with I and me and my. Because it's going to bring us to a place that we have to not acknowledge something about ourselves. Not a little something, a very big something. And acknowledging it in such a way that we understand and we own the truths about our sinfulness and understand that sinners, saved and unsaved, are without excuse. So here we go. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of me, who by my unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to me because God has shown it to me. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been, been made. So I am without excuse. For although I know God, I do not honor him as God or give him thanks. But I have become futile in my thinking, and my foolish heart is darkened. Sometimes if we consider God's word that way, we just want to kind of shake it off a little bit. Do not shake it off. Sit in it for a while. In fact, it gets much, much worse in the rest of the chapter and on into chapter two. And I encourage you to read God's word that way and kind of sit and soak in it for a while. Because if you understand how big your sin problem is, you're going to understand how much he loves you and adores you. So that's the bad extreme. That's the bad news. But there's good news. It's called the gospel. It's what God has done for us. And what God has done for us allows him to say things about us. You see, this book is a horrible tragedy. But it's an amazing victory as well. And so I want to read you some biblical truths and do it in the same extreme way. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For my sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him 
I might become the righteousness of God. That's extreme. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For I know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for my sake he became poor, so that I, by his poverty, might become rich. That's extreme. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for me. And while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, for you. That's extreme. And so I encourage you to read God, God's word this way. But a lot of us say, yeah, we know that. But if we know it, why don't we live forgiven? We won't live forgiven if we think we have nothing to be forgiven for. That's an extreme thought, but it's going down the wrong road. Right? We won't live forgiven if we think that we're unforgivable and try to earn God's favor. You can't earn God's favor, but here's another extreme. God's favor has been earned for you through Christ. And if I think that my sins are unforgivable and I have to do it the Smith-Barney way by earning it, we don't understand the God of the Bible. We don't understand the cross. And we won't live forgiven if we don't understand where the tragedy lies but where the victory has been won. And if we fall prey to any of those attitudes, we're going to be as our uh, scripture tells us not to do, to not be debtors to the flesh because debt-paying slaves of the flesh pay the old, rebellious, insubordinate, self-sufficient nature and desires of the flesh. That's what we're doing. We're taking the life that God has given us and paid for all over again with the cross and we're paying the flesh. We've either forgotten the gospel or we don't understand it or we don't believe it. And with every passing sin, convicted, guilty, every sin, big or small, deserves a conviction because it's an offense to an almighty and all good God. But praise God that we are not condemned, right? Those are some extremes. We are debtors not to the flesh, to living according to the flesh. We owe the flesh nothing but enmity and war. Do you remember the word that I spoke of that says put to death, that it's, it's, it's present and it's active and indicative, it's, it's on purpose? The word enmity, enmity means active opposition. God's word tells us that when we live according to the world, according to the world's rules, that we're really sinning, that we're not living according to the best life that God has for us. And that when we do that, we're at enmity with God. We're in active opposition towards God. So we need to be kind of rocked a little bit by the truth about our sin. And in doing so, we can come to enmity, active opposition about, uh, about our sin. Don't be a debt payer to your flesh. Because you're just paying your destroyer. And don't mess around with his devices. Making payments to the flesh means that you're paying for your own destruction. The Bible is really extreme about how it says to approach sin and its devices. It says, run, cut it off, gouge it out. Do you remember the story about Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Right? 
Joseph given great favor and trust and responsibility by Potiphar, head of his household, right? But here comes sin in the form of Potiphar's wife. Hey, Joseph, nobody's in the house. Grabs onto his garment. Nobody will know. Nobody's watching. What did he do? He was out of there. He understood the responsibility that he had that had been given to him by Potiphar. Not only that, that he was blessed by God and a representative of God. And so just like in the cartoons, there was nothing left but a cloud of dust in his garments. He was out of there. That's how you handle sin. And it's got to be constant. (coughs) John Owen, in this book that I mentioned, uh, The Mortification of Sin and Believers, talks about the constancy of sin in our lives. He says, Indwelling sin always abides while we are in this world, therefore it always is to be mortified. Sin does not only still abide in us, but it is still acting, still laboring, bringing forth the deeds of the flesh. When sin lets us alone, that we may let sin alone. But sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet. So our plots against sin ought to be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even where there is least suspicion. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing and tempting. And if sin is always acting, if we are not always mortifying mortifying it, we are lost creatures. Those that stand still and take double blows from the enemy without resistance will undoubtedly be conquered. If sin is subtle, watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing our souls, and we are lazy, negligent, and foolish in endeavoring to kill it, we cannot expect a peaceful end. There is not a day that goes by where sin is either thwarted by us or is thwarting us, is prevailed upon or is prevailing upon us. And it will be so all the days that we live in this world. That's pretty intense. And so, it's always messing with our heads, our sinful nature, isn't it? So it has to be a constant effort. Ray mentioned uh, during the series that our emotions are changed by truths. Said the other way around, truths change emotions, not the other way around. Now, we may make emotional decisions, but what's true is you've already placed a truth in your heart that drives those emotions and leads you to emotional decisions or hasty decisions or immature decisions or destructive decisions because truth leaks in our heads and our hearts. We're like sponges. And sponges leak when you pick them up and dangle them, right? Whatever is inside comes out. And so it's true that if it leaks out, whatever you place it back into, it will seep up. So if we don't fill ourselves with God's truth, whatever we place ourselves back into, new truths are going to be a seep in, and there won't be any room for God's truths in our hearts. So we must be diligent about filling our tank with God's truth. And what's also true is that our feeling part of our brain will hijack our thinking part of our brain. It's chemically true. You can look it up. And so you may have uh, had an error in your life, and someone might have come up up to you and said, what were you thinking? 
Well, the honest answer might be, I wasn't, I was feeling. The raw truths that we hold inside come out when we're squeezed, and it's a constant, constant battle. But God's given us a weapon. Number four, the weapon God gives us to kill sin is his word. Ephesians 6 calls it the sword of the spirit, the word of God. In our verse here in 13, it says that we are to be putting sin to death by the spirit, not with the spirit, but by the spirit, putting the deeds of the body, and then we will live. So let me explain. God gives us this weapon an instrument of war to put sin to death. But we don't go around, you know, swinging our Bibles to kill sin in our lives, right? No, we've got to place God's word in our hearts and by the spirit, we wield those truths to fight sin that is deep, deep down in our hearts. That's what it means, by the spirit, with the word of God, okay? And so I must participate in the active process through the Spirit, through God's Word. John Piper's mom gave him a Bible when he was 15 years old, and in it she wrote, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. What a wise, wise lady she was. So we need to be full of God's Word, but we must read it carefully. Like, for instance, the word body in this. That doesn't mean the church body. We're not supposed to go around the church and be killing everybody else's sin. No, our priority is to kill our sin. That's what Paul is talking about, putting to death the deeds of your body. And understand, again, that it's a battle. And what you need to know about this battle is that killing sin is a sin-killing marathon and requires the dedication and resilience of marathon Christians. Marathon Christians do battle in here through the Spirit, pumping the blood of the gospel through their veins hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, decade after decade, and so on and so on. Has anybody ever heard of William Wilberforce? Pretty amazing guy. He was a marathon Christian. But he was also a very uh, influential politician. And when you're thinking about our election year, that probably doesn't go well together here in the good old USA, does it? But he was. He was a devout Christian and a very influential politician. But he had kind of a disdain for what some may call the normal political life or the pursuits of politicians like parties and pomp. But he felt particularly led by God to dedicate all his life to defeat the slave trade in Britain. And he did so because he was a marathon Christian. One of his adversaries said this about him, it is necessary to watch him as he is blessed with a very sufficient quantity of that enthusiastic spirit, which is so far from yielding that it grows more vigorous with blows which means knock him down and he gets back up stronger. 
And that's what marathon Christians are. John Piper puts it this way. A marathon Christian learns from defeat, gets up, sets new goals, and presses on, not with plans of revenge, but with fresh gospel-centered strategies of love. Instead of questioning God, submits to his wise, loving control. They may be sorrowful, but instead of whining, they are rejoicing in the midst of tribulation and refined like steel. If you're going to be this kind of Christian, you have to learn to kill the sin of self-pity, pride, grudge-holding, and loving created things and the praise of man over God. Christians like this do not come from nowhere. They come out of the fiery furnace of warfare with sin. Killing sin is it's no walk in the park. It is hard. And you might even look like I walked out here, but it's not because God's not good. It's because we're bad and killing sin is tough. Number six, the fierce battle of fighting sin is fought internally. Internally first, where God is. And so when we think about where God is in us, it says in God's word that Christ is in us. We d- Christ dwells within us and we dwell in him. And if we look at Romans chapter five, it says where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds that much more. Grace abounds in you as a Christian more than your sin abounds. So take advantage of that. Understand that truth. Understand what that truth will do when it comes to fighting your sin. It's a particular kind of relationship. Fighting this internal battle means filling up our spiritual tank daily by setting our mind on the things of the Spirit, on God's Word, on prayer, talking to God, on meditating on His Word, on praying His Word, on living out this gospel relationship with God. Psalm 119, kind of the psalmist paints this picture of this kind of relationship with God. It says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your words. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He's saying he is God, and he operates according to his word, and he's asking him to teach him some things that he doesn't know yet. Good judgment and knowledge because he has confidence in God's word. It says that I'm not perfect, but in my imperfection, I sought you, God. I didn't run away from you like Adam and Eve did in the garden. I pursue you, and now I keep your word. God changes us from the inside out. It says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of golds and silver pieces. He's saying there's sin all around me. There's sinful people with sin in me. And it's good that I was afflicted. It's good that I suffer. That way I can test your word instead of trying to test my willpower. And it's more valuable valuable than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This guy had a full tank. And you won't get far with a full tank without a full tank. You won't suffer well. But once your tank is full, once you have God's word just kind of bubbling up inside you, you're going to be able to spot sin inside of you and outside of you from a mile away. But speaking of having a full tank, we don't drive around kind of looking at our gas gauge, do we? We'll get in a wreck. 
No, we need to live the life. We need to venture out. We are in, we are in the world, not of the world. God wants us to make an impact in the world for the gospel, right? But we should be checking the gauge often and asking ourselves questions in a proactive way. I put one of these in your bulletin. It's a tool that I want you to have. It's going to make up the rest of my teaching here tonight, and we're going to go through it question by question. Um, In its original form, How to Put Sin to Death, it was published by a company online called Visual Theology. The website's on your bulletin, and I encourage you to look at this and a bunch of other great resources that they have because they're great tools for killing sin. But I want you to know that I edited some things in here, not because they were not true, but because they were uh, not complete. And so I want us to get the complete, full full picture of what it takes to be putting sin to death. So as you look at it, if you open it up, it looks really, really confusing. But the more time that you spend with it and get to know where the arrows go and what it says, the more useful it's going to be to you. The more that you filter your thoughts through these questions and filter your answers through God's word, the more useful it's going to be to you. These words ask you questions that will point to whether you're biblically on track or biblically off track. If you're on track, it'll usually point you to the next question. If you're off track, it'll point you towards some biblical truths that you need to wrestle with. You need to really consider and ask yourself and take to God that he might help you understand where you might be off. You need to wrestle with it. And this is not a one-time thing for you to go, yeah, that was cool, and throw it away. You can if you want to. That's up to you. You're going to make your own decisions. But this is like a workout routine, okay, for killing sin. We ought to be asking these kinds of questions to ourselves over and over and over and over again. We shouldn't ask the first two and said, well, I answered yes to the first two, and I stayed in a Holiday Inn Express last night, so I'm good. It's not that. Killing sin is an ongoing, everyday thing, and so we ought to lose it, use it that way. So I'm going to go through these uh, questions and embellish on those a bit. The first one is, have I identified the sin I want to put to death? Well, first of all, we're not picking the chocolates that we like the most and poking holes in all the chocolates to see ones that we like and the ones that we're going to throw away. Every single sin in our lives needs to be put to death. We don't save the ones we like. We might, because sin feels good sometimes. It's fun sometimes, but it leads to death. So concerning every sin, in order to defeat sin, I need to understand who my enemy is and how I am cooperating with him in rebellion against God. The next question, really, really important question. Do I have confidence that I have been saved? A lot of us get hung up on people questioning our Christianity. But if you have God's word in your heart, if you have confidence in the gospel, if you have confidence that you're humble underneath God's reign in your life and that he is Lord and Savior, those people questioning your salvation aren't going to bother you. We ought to be asking ourselves every single day, am I saved? Am I a Christian? What do I base that on? Because if I'm trusting the finished work of Jesus Christ, I'm on track. But if I'm putting my hope in the things that I do, I'm off track. And if I'm on track, there should be evidence of fruit in my life. 
If I am truly saved, I won't habitually be sinning. I'm not saying be perfect. I'm saying get some wins. Use God's word and what he has given you and what he's done for you and who you are in Christ to be killing sin and to grow fruit in your lives. And so in that way, you have, will have had some victories. And remember that the only sin that you can hope to overcome is forgiven sin. And forgiven sin is confessed sin. That's why Luther said that all of the Christian life is repentance. And it's why scripture encourages us to, on an ongoing basis, confess our sins to one another and to pray for each other. It encourages us in 1 John chapter 1 that we should go to God and bring him our sins and confess to him. And what does it say that he'll do? It says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to forgive your sins. Don't think that there's any sin that he's not going to forgive for you. Because if, he, if you brought a sin to God and Christ died on the cross for all of your sins, God being unforgiving towards you would be unjust. And God is just. But he's not only faithful and just to forgive us our sins, he brings us through this sanctification process, which is the process of cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes I, I hear people looking at God's word and um, uh, looking for silver bullets that they might kill their sins, you know, rebuking some demon that really doesn't really exist. It's a problem of truth in their heart or looking for some silver bullet that they can just eliminate their sin without doing any work. We don't do that. We need to look in this Bible for things that will change our hearts and our minds and renew us and transform us, transform by the renewing of our minds through God's word. The life that God has given us is our ministry. God, we, we are made by God for God to bring glory to God. And the fruit that we bear in that ministry ought to come from cleansing, not giftedness or being good. It's not through performance. You don't need to perform. You need to transform. Behaving well or looking good on what I have. Look what I have. You can be like me. Be a Christian. Look what I have. No. Or what I can do. No, that leaves no room for cleansing, only earned justification. And we know by reading God's word that that doesn't work. Dr. Crawford Lawrence, he's one of my favorite teachers, and he did this teaching on uh, 1 John chapter 1 on holiness. And he, gives, he gave some examples of himself as a young man who traveled a lot and stayed in hotels on how he held himself accountable and went about the business of killing sin. One of the things that he did when he went into a hotel room is in his, in his uh, suitcase, he had a picture of his beautiful family, of his wife and his kids. And it not only reminded him that he was so blessed by God to have a beautiful family and a great marriage, but that he's been given great responsibility. And he said, I put it in front of the TV or I put it in front of the bed and I need to do that. And he said this, and we all should be considering this. He said, because I know that I'm always a half a step away from stupid. 
We're always a half away, a step away from stupid. And he also knew, as we all should, that it is only by God's grace, provision, presence, and constant cleansing that we have any chance to kill sin and to bear godly fruit in our lives. It's important that we are confident that we are saved and why God chose to save us. God chose to save us for his glory and for our good. And what we believe about salvation and the source of our salvation will determine how we live that salvation out. If the cross is not sacrificial enough to atone for our sin and the resurrection is not powerful enough to give us what we need to continually sin, we're, I almost sinned right there, we're without hope. We're without hope. Is my sin deep-rooted? Well, there's no answering no to that question. And if you answer no to that question, you've got to go right back to the top of the list. I will need to be always diligent or vigilant and cry out to God about all my sin because I'm supposed to have a desperate faith. God's word tells us to work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. That sounds pretty desperate. But if I have particularly destructive sin in my life, I will need to be especially vigilant and cry out to God with an extra measure of desperate, desperate faith. And if I don't, I might fall prey to the next one. Is it constantly easier to sin than to do what's right? Maybe the answer is yes. And again, I am, tr- am I trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the truths of God's word? Or am I putting my hope in the things that I do, in my willpower? We have no willpower when it comes to our sin. <clears throat> Listen, you have all you need at every moment of every day as a Christian to turn towards any sin in your life and to say, no, I am God's property. I am a child of God, an heir with Christ. I am not paying. I have been paid for. That's the power you have in your identity in Christ. So stop paying the flesh. Here's three questions. Do I see my sin as a willful act of rebellion towards God? Have I felt the weight of my sin against God and do I have a godly sorrow? As I said before, maybe the answer is yes. Maybe you're in a place where maybe you don't even believe in God or maybe you believe in God but you really like your sin. Well, first of all, that's a horrible road to be on and God loves you and he has a better way. But at least it's honest. But if the answer is yes, maybe you're just uh, in a good place. I need to look at the cross humbly and see what it actually costs if I answer no to that question. I can't say that it wasn't me. It was me. And it is me every time I sin. As though I were spitting on him myself, as though I were crowning him with thorns myself, as though I were pounding the nails in myself. I need to be brokenhearted that my sin has caused God to grieve. Don't misunderstand me because it has not broken your union with God. 
but it has broken your communion with God. I need to stop minimizing and excusing my sin to the point that I am grieved about offending my Father in heaven. But if I confess my sin, people will know, and there'll be consequences. Maybe so. But here's another extreme. Because of Christ, you'll never, ever, ever, ever know the depth and the extreme of the consequences that you really deserve because of Christ. So I need to confess my sins and whatever smaller consequences might come, they might feel big, but with Christ, they're really not that big because of who God is, who Christ is. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. If I can look at the cross and go, eh, thanks, I won't understand my rebellion towards God. Or I can be religiously arrogant and say, well, I've done my part. I've done my spiritual chores. I've given. I say my prayers. I go to small group. Listen, you have no part. Let me say this. We have no part in our salvation but to bring our sins to the cross. That's where we get our tank full. How do we do that? Ephesians 3:16 through 19. Through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you may being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's full tank. When I understand my extreme depravity and his extreme love, my heart will be sweetly broken about my sin. And not only that, I will be soothed about the sin that's committed against me. And then I will be diligent to do my part to put sin to death and to bring it all to the cross and to drown myself in his word. And from there, I will have a godly sorrow that leads to confession and repentance. And I bring that sorrow and confession and repentance to the God who gives me life and mercy and grace every time I take a breath, who is faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. The next question on the list is, do I desperately want to stop sinning? Again, maybe your answer is no. But maybe your answer is yes, but not in a desperate way. When we are not desperate to kill sin, we, won't, we, we don't know how desperately jealous God is to love us and make us whole. And so there's something wrong up here, and there's something wrong in here. We might have, not have a full tank. We might have a couple holes in our tank. And, we, and, and concerning our sin... We're either ignorant to or blind to or in denial of the living, growing cancer of sin that is inside us and how it grows. A half a step away from stupid and a breath away from death. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says this. 
Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Have you been watching the news? Those are desires that have given birth to sin. And that sin is fully grown and literally causing death. So we have to ask ourselves, what desires are we feeding in us? What desires are we cultivating? Are you killing what God has for you by paying debt to the flesh? Or are you humbly living and confidently killing sin by the Spirit with faith because you have embraced the reality of the extreme debt that has been paid for you? Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember, ready, set, go. Whatever treasure you set your mind on, your heart is already set on, and the sin is already growing. Sin matures and becomes stronger when the gospel is weak and immature in our hearts. Next question, do I desire God to be glorified in me? Yes or no, I need to continue to ask that question. Do I desire God to be glorified in me? Do I long for it, pant for it, cry out for it, and desire it? Am I glorifying something instead of God or asking him to share his glory with something that I want? Next. Have I given myself to an identity, a habit, or a desire that amplifies or drives me to this sin? I need to understand and believe that God has created and defined me. I can't look at God's word and say, he didn't create me like this, because he did. And if you say otherwise, you make your creator out to be a liar. I cannot claim to have no control over myself and use that as an excuse to give in to sinful habits and desires and just say, well, that's just the way God made me. No, he didn't. He made you in his image. And living to the contrary is wiping your feet on the grace and mercy of the cross. Don't destroy yourself by living to the contrary. Don't pay for your own destruction. Because I can't trust the desires of my own sinful heart. I need to be diligent about the people and environments and causes that lead me away from God and leave no room for him. If I am more apt to sin in a specific area or justify my sin for a particular cause that brings only worldly social justice and no glory to God, I need to wake up. I don't care how passionate you are about something. You need to ask yourself, where does the glory of those passions rest? Social justice can only be justified if it comes from the justification that we already have in Christ. Look at what's happening in the news. Look at what's happening in politics. Look what's happening in the cities of our nation. God bless America. It's disgusting, it's gross, and it is heartbreaking. 
I understand the pain from which some movements come. I understand the pain and confusion where self-identifying comes from. I understand where this division and riots and perversion that is killing and rotting the people and families of our nations from the inside out, I understand where that comes from. But it doesn't start with an evil act or an evil agenda. It starts with the absence of the gospel truth that penetrates our souls and drives us to our knees that we might say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's where it comes from. There is no earthly characteristic, cause, color, or collection that will save us from the wrath of God or bring us the peace of God. The community of hell will be filled with people of all kinds, men and women, straight and gay, people of every color. There will be pastors and police officers and politicians in hell, criminals and crooks and religious people. None of us have any hope at all unless the gospel through the Spirit of God puts to death the deeds of the flesh. God help us. God help us. Do I know the occasions and situations when I am most tempted to sin? Can I identify the patterns that lead me to sin? If not, I need to be sober and watch for the behaviors and the moods and the places and the media and the people that lead me to sin. And if they're leading me to sin, I'm following it to sin. We need help. We need God's help. We need God's people's help too. I need the help of healthy people close to me like friends and family and church leaders and pastors to help me identify these patterns and help me make healthy choices. I love what Proverbs 24, 6 says, for by wise guidance you can wage your war and in abundance of counsel there is victory. We don't have to fight our sin alone. So don't fight and kill your sin alone. You might have heard it said that if you have a particular struggle that you continue over and over again in a particular area, you might have heard people say, well, change your playmates and change your playground. And those things are true, but I'd add to. Get a new ball and stop playing the games that you've been playing. If you're good at identifying these patterns that precede sin, that's great. That will help you make better decisions, but don't be quick to assume that because you've gotten a few wins under your belt that the people, places, and patterns you've gotten some distance from are now safe. God has called you out of those places. You still have the capacity to fall into sin in those places. And just because you've got some distance from it, you've got to know that if you fall again, the hole is just deeper and much harder to get out of. It 
if you have a heart for those people that are struggling with what you used to struggle with and have overcome those things because of the gospel, praise God, but call them out of it. Don't go mucking around in the darkness with them. We are weak. Show them what God has done in your life and give glory to him. Point to him and his strength and his goodness. But you can also share about ah, his grace is amazing, amazing because of my badness. Next, do I battle sin immediately? Again, don't mess around with sin and its devices. Do what we've been talking about. Run, cut it off, gouge it out, kill it. Because when we allow sin to linger, it grows. And isn't it interesting that we call it debt? Debt earns interest. And what happens when we pay the minimum payment on our debt? It'll soon double what we owe. And so stop paying the flesh and kill it quickly and regularly and completely. We must understand that moment by moment, we are snatched from the jaws of death by a God who loves us immeasurably and doesn't will that any of us should perish. Now, you might be confused if you're not quite sure what God is talking about when he says that um, we will die. Sin might not kill you physically, but will kill you internally, and it might kill the good things that God wants for you in your life, like an awesome marriage, like an awesome relationship with God, like awesome kids and an awesome family and a great job that you love, a career that you're able to provide for your family and give God glory. It can kill those things. And so we need to know, do we live life like people whose lives have been spared from what we deserve we can't be casual and sleepy about killing sin and not endeavor to go about killing sin with the full armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. It tells us about this battle and it tells us about the full armor. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the uh, cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a battle that you cannot fight without the full armor of God and without God dwelling with inside you. Verse 13, it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil days, and having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith <clears throat> with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Do you notice the constancy of which we're supposed to be fighting the battle? It says in all circumstances, at all times. We don't put on the full armor of God and then go out on the battlefield and take a nap. It says to that end, keep alert 
with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as for me, this is Paul speaking, he's asking for prayer, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I might declare in bodily as I ought to speak. Romans 3.12 says that community, sin happens in community. It actually says that together we have become worthless. But this is telling us that sin killing happens in community. You get some chinks in your armor, there's a brother next to you, a sister next to you, a group next to you that's wearing the full armor of God. Get some help. Next, have I meditated on scripture? So again, what is the armor of God? Or are they, uh, the armor, uh, what is the word of God and the armor of God? The sword of the spirit, right? So we have to be good at wielding that sword. Do I expect God to give me victory? Well, the resurrection means that you've already been giving, given victory over sin. And so you have to ask yourself, how big is my God? And you also have to ask yourself the other extreme, how big is my sin problem? Have you ever looked at, through the wrong end of the binoculars? So are you looking at God saying, my sin is just too big, and oh, look, he is just so far away, and he's so tiny. You're looking through the wrong end of the binoculars. You don't even need binoculars to look at God. But you might be looking at your sin through the wrong end of binoculars, going, eh, it's really not that big. But we have a big, big, big sin problem. But we have an even bigger God. So what do you believe about the gospel? And what do you believe about when, it, when the gospel says that <clears throat> you are in Christ and what it means to, by the finished work of God, of Christ? It doesn't mean that he's done with you. His finished work means that he has put an end to your sin debt. In Christ, we are redeemed and we are saved from the penalty and the power of sin. That's called salvation, and that's an event. The debt work is finished. But the sanctification work is ongoing because we continue to sin and we need to continue to keep fighting. And so this is our last fill-in on your bulletin notes. We are unfinished people. Until Christ returns, we are not yet whole. Paul himself says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This means that whether it's when he comes back or we go to see him, he's not finished with us. He's not finished cleansing us from all unrighteousness. He's not finished with us making us whole. Since the victory over the penalty and the power of sin has already been won, it is our choice moment by moment to live in it or not, killing sin every day of my life or not. Not in my own power, but in his, by his spirit, trusting in him. We walk by faith and not by sight. Our verses say, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. 
This means that the battlefield of debt is leveled. It's wiped clean. And if we endeavor to continue making that into a playground and setting up resurrection sin, resurrected sin soldiers in our lives, we're going to quickly learn and horribly learn that the enemy fire kills us, but also that friendly fire will kill you just as dead or kill those things in your life just as dead. I must be about my father's business in me, and that is to kill sin and keep on killing it until my dying breath. Why? Because the enemy isn't going to stop trying to kill me and the things in my life until then. He's not going to stop killing, stealing, and destroying. He's not going to stop prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to who he's going to devour. Devour. Yes, we're unfinished people, but although we're unfinished, we must think and live like children of God because that's what we are. The life God has given us is rooted by who we are in Christ. And the verses following our verses today say, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery that falls back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Killing sin is going to feel like suffering, but there's a glorious prize on the other side. And so we must go about every day killing sin that we might suffer with Christ, but also that we might be glorified in Christ and with him. Let's pray. God, help us to suffer well in the reality that you, our Abba Father, are with us and for us. Give us the strength that we need to be constantly killing sin. Give us a burning passion in our hearts for your word. Keep us close, God. Make us constantly aware of your spirit, who not only has promised to guide us, but who also bears witness with our spirits that we are your children and not only children, but heirs with Christ our Lord. Grant us repentance, God. Help us to kill every sin by bringing it out of the darkness of our hearts and into the light of your presence. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness and make us white as snow through the power of the cross. Keep us in community with your people, God, and make that community a safe place where we can confess our sins to one another and pray to you together that we might be healed by your power for your glory and our good. We praise you for who you are and what you've done for your never-ending mercies and steadfast love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys very much. Live like this. God bless. Have a great weekend.